0: We invite you to turn one last time to Exodus chapter 20. come this morning to the tenth commandment, Exodus 20 verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or His female servant, or His ox, or His donkey, or anything that belongs to Your neighbor. Father, we pray now as we approach Your Word that Christ would be our treasure, that we would have no need and very little want to covet all the things that the world possesses. God, let us leave today satisfied in Jesus. We pray that you accomplish that now through your word in Exodus 20. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1870, John D. Rockefeller, that name is familiar to you all, he founded Standard Oil Company. And within 10 years, Standard Oil controlled 90% of the oil business in the United States. And Rockefeller was a millionaire many times over. When he died in 1937, his net worth, if equated to today's dollars, would have been somewhere around $192 billion. To put that in perspective, Bill Gates, who is our own uh, richest man in America today, is worth only $82 billion. So here's a man who is worth two and a half times as much As Bill Gates. He was the richest man by far ever to live in America. But, as some of you know, on one occasion a newsman asked him, reportedly, How much money is enough? And Rockefeller's response was, Just a little more. Just a little more. Now, that quote was given many decades ago, but I think it encapsulates. Very clearly, one of the American slogans of our day, of 2007. We may not phrase it the same, but the American way of life in 2007 says to us just a little more. Someone should perhaps call the U.S. Mint and encourage them, for the sake of accuracy, to start printing that on our money instead of in God we trust. Just a little more the mantra of Western culture. And the reason it's the mantra of our culture is because it's the mantra of so many individuals who live in our culture. Some of whom may be sitting in this room. A culture becomes a culture because of individuals. So let's not throw rocks at everyone else today. Let's realize that we are part of this just a little more culture. Just a little more net worth. Just a little more horsepower. Just a little more income. Just a little more equity, just a little more space on my deck, just a little more width on my TV screen, just a little more Internet speed, just a little more food, just a little more respect. This is the air we breathe, isn't it? And it's the air of covetousness and greed. And I want to say to you that while many elements of American culture still may frown upon sins like disobedience to parents, commandment number five, murder, commandment number six, adultery, commandment number seven, theft, deceit, almost no one in our culture is engaging in the battle against covetousness. It's an accepted, even encouraged part of American culture today. I think that fact is encapsulated best by those Home Depot commercials. You know, where the two men are out working in their front yard, uh, two weekend warriors, and they've gotten their supplies at Home Depot, and they begin to talk to one another over the fence. And the one guy says to the other, What are you working on? Well, I'm installing a new porch light. Well, I'm installing a new porch. Well, I'm going to build a new deck. Well, my deck is going to have a built in pool. Some of you have seen those commercials. And that's our culture. It's a perfect picture of the culture in which we live. We're consumed with stuff. We're consumed with prestige. We're consumed with the other man's grass. We are dead set on keeping up with the Joneses. And by the looks of many Christian homes and garages and church parking lots, it would appear that the church is just as susceptible to this disease as the rest of the culture We look just as wealthy in many cases as the people around us, which means that we want to look just as wealthy as the people around us. And in the midst of all of that, we come to this 10th commandment, which slaps us right in the face. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, it's time we started to take that seriously. It's time that we started to put it into practice. But before we can put Exodus 20:17 into practice, we need this time today to understand what this commandment really says and what it really means. We need to begin with a definition of covetousness. What does he mean when he says you shall not covet? What does the word covet mean? Well, the, the word covet in, in verse 17 is a Hebrew word that simply means Desire. Desire. That's the way it's most often translated in the Old Testament. Simply desire. In fact, many times it's used for good desires. As in Psalm 19, 9, and 10, where the psalmist says, The judgments of the Lord are true. They are more desirable, same word, than gold. So this isn't a bad word in and of itself. The Hebrew doesn't denote sin simply from the word covet. But the you shall not, at the beginning of the verse, does, doesn't it? The you shall not lets us know there's something sinister about this kind of desire. So there are good and godly desires. There are appropriate ways that we might use the word covet to describe good things. But there are also also wicked desires, selfish desires, forbidden desires. And those kind of desires are usually described by translating this word into the English word covet. Most often when you find the word covet in the Bible or just in Christian use in general, it's referring to ungodly, selfish, sinful desires. One of the definitions that Webster gives for the word covet, the English word covet, is to desire unreasonably or unlawfully. And that's good, isn't it? To desire unreasonably or unlawfully. But that's not all we mean when we use the word covet, is it? Because if you were watching the show Jeopardy and the answer was given to desire unreasonably or unlawfully, the contestant might well say, what is greed? Right? There's a little bit of difference in greed and covetousness. Greed is a part of covetousness, and we're going to talk about that later. But greed is not exactly the same thing as covetousness. Covetousness, and we see it here in this verse, is a special kind of greed. Greed. Covetousness is not just a greedy desire for a house, a wife, an ox, a donkey, a servant. Covetousness is a greedy desire for someone else's house, wife, servants, donkeys, oxen, and so on. So within covetousness, there is an element of jealousy, isn't there? Brian Edwards, commenting on the Tenth Commandment, says, One great problem of our Western lifestyle is not that we do not have, but that our neighbors have more. So covetousness has something to do with greed. It has something simply to do with desire. It has something to do with selfishness and also has something to do with jealousy. All those things tangled up into one big ball of yarn. And it's difficult to pull all those strings apart and really see what you're looking at here. That's how bad covetousness is. That's how tangled up in it we are. We can't even see that we're in the midst of it many times. But if we stand back, we all know covetousness when we see it, and we all know it when we feel it. And if we know our Bibles, we know that covetousness is downright ugly. Perhaps one of the best ways to get our minds around that, to get our minds around a definition of covetousness, is to see it in action. And so if you want to just keep your finger in Exodus 20 and turn over to 1 Kings 21, I want to give you a picture of covetousness. Try to give you a definition, now a picture. The picture comes in the story of a king of Israel whose name was Ahab. And Ahab was a covetous man. Let me read to you 1 Kings 21, 1 through 4. Now it came about after these things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth saying, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And that was true. God said, Don't sell your inheritance outside of your family. So Ahab came into his house sullen and vexed because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. Now look at Ahab, king of Israel, sulking over Naboth's vineyard. Note, Ahab had a palace next to the vineyard. Naboth was a poor man. Ahab had a palace. Ahab was Ahab of Samaria. This is Jezreel. This is Ahab's second or third or fourth home. But he's sulking over this man's little patch of grapes and all those tangled yarns that made up our definition of covetousness are here in ahab ahab desired that which belonged to another his desires were greedy desires he had to have this vineyard even though he had so much he had to have this one plot of ground his desires were unreasonable or excuse me unlawful desires verse 3 It was against the law of God for Naboth to sell this vineyard and for Ahab to have it, though he was the king. His desires were unreasonable desires. The mighty king of Israel moping on his bed over a few grapevines. And his desires, as you can see there, are downright ugly. You can read on in 1 Kings 21 and you'll find out that Ahab's tantrum over Naboth's vineyard ended in Ahab's taking of Naboth's life so that he could have the vineyard for himself. That's a picture of covetousness. And it ought to look quite familiar to us. We ought to, some of us have seen it when we looked in the mirror recently. I want to ask you if you found yourself sulking lately because your neighbor has a better vineyard than you or because your coworker got the promotion that you didn't get or because your friend got the television that you really wish you had. Or because everyone else seems to be healthier than you, or have more than you, or be happier than you. Found yourself sulking like Ahab lately? Looking at Ahab is like looking at a mirror. And looking at Ahab shows us that covetousness is really quite ridiculous and it's even more ugly. So we've seen a definition of covetousness, we've tried to paint a picture of covetousness. Now let me ask a question What kinds of things are we tempted to covet? What are the objects of covetousness? There's a good list of answers there in Exodus 20:17, aren't there? You shall not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. There's a list. Now, some of you read that list and you're already breathing a sigh of relief saying to yourself, Phew, I'm pretty safe on this point because my neighbor doesn't even have any servants and... I wouldn't know what to do with an ox if someone gave me one, and I'm a woman, so as luck would have it, I don't really feel any covetousness towards my neighbor's wife, so I'm in good shape here. Don't forget there's an anything that belongs to your neighbor at the end. We'll come back to that. But I don't want us to think too narrowly about our interpretation of verse 17. Verse 17 is a generic list designed to mention a few of the kinds of things that ancient Israelites would have been tempted to covet. If the Ten Commandments had been written in 2007, the list would probably be a little bit different. So I don't want you so much to think specifically about servants and farm animals today, but rather I want us to see in Exodus 20:17 in this ancient list of objects of covetousness. I want us to see some general categories of the kinds of things that we coveted, And then we'll try to be more specific with a few examples. What kinds of categories stretch across the ages that all men and women of all time are tempted to covet? Well, first, possessions. Possessions. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Now, in ancient times, the word house didn't usually refer just to windows and doors and roofs and siding and all the other things although it did refer to that, but your neighbor's house generically meant your neighbor's household, your neighbor's possessions, his house, his field, his barn, his wagon, his furniture, his lamps, and so on. So the idea here is really don't covet your your neighbor's stuff when he says don't covet your neighbor's house. And we all understand that. We all understand what it's like to covet other people's stuff because people around us have lots of nice stuff and some of us have it as well can distinctly remember standing in the front yard with a friend and having him say, look across the street, top right window. Do you see the size of that TV? We could almost watch the game from here. And some of you know what that's like. To drive down the street, you even drive through certain neighborhoods just so that you can feed your desire to covet. All of us know what it's like to covet other people's stuff. In fact, if we were just to hand out a sheet of paper today and say write down uh, the kinds of uh, things that you covet, I think all of us would turn in a list of stuff probably. Those are the first things that would come to our mind. Cars, televisions, watches, tools, books, computers, clothing, all those kinds of things. So let me just ask you right off the bat, have you been coveting your neighbor's stuff? Allowing yourself to be discontent Over your own material possessions, moping about your own stuff and groping for someone else's. Some of us have been doing that. And we need to simply hear the opening phrase of the 10th commandment You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's stuff. Secondly, people. We covet possessions, we covet people. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Now again, obviously the reverse could be said here. You shall not covet your neighbor's husband. Both men and women are bound by the Tenth Commandment here. And this portion of the Tenth Commandment is speaking specifically about coveting other people. Either the sexual excitement that that you think that they could bring or maybe the emotional fulfillment that you believe would come from having a new love. This part of the Tenth Commandment speaks about lust. It speaks about comparing your spouse with others. Speaks about being discontent in your marriage. We spoke about all these things when we studied the seventh commandment. So I won't belabor the point here, except to ask again how are you doing? Young, old, married, single, how are you doing in the realm of sexual purity? Are you really gouging out your eyes and cutting off your hands? Or are you coveting your neighbor's wife or husband? Coveting possessions capicor and prestige. Most of the rest of the Sheanari's nurse females or his ox or his donkey. How does that apply in a culture where well, most of us don't have servants, have never had servants, wouldn't know what to do if someone put an ox in our backyard today. What do we do with these? What does this mean for us? Well, again, it's important to understand the culture these people lived in. Ancient Israel was an agrarian society. And in an agrarian society, how do you measure someone's wealth? Well there are a few different ways but one of the ways is you count the number of oxen they have you count the number of donkeys or camels or whatever it is you remember in the book of Job he was a wealthy, wealthy man and how did they measure his wealth? They didn't talk about stocks and bonds they talked about camels and donkeys. And so when the commandment says don't covet your neighbor's ox or his donkey what it's saying is don't covet the fact that your neighbor is wealthy that he's powerful that he's got more prestige than you do. But again, in a culture like ours, it doesn't always compute the same way. Servants, for instance. Probably none of you have servants. Maybe you have someone who works for you a little bit during the week, but probably none of you have a servant. In Ethiopia, they had servants But not everyone in Ethiopia has a servant. Only affluent foreigners or the culturally elite Ethiopians have servants. So in a culture like that, they say, hey, don't covet your neighbor's servants. And they go, aha, servants are belonging to rich people. Don't covet the fact that your neighbor is rich, powerful, and prestigious. But what about America? How does prestige show itself here? Perhaps it's the neighborhood in which you live. Perhaps it's the size of home in which you live. Perhaps it's the make of the automobile in which you drive to work. Perhaps it's the clubs of which you're a member. The shoulders with whom you rub. There are all sorts of ways to measure it. But what the commandment is teaching us is when someone else is more powerful than you, more prestigious than you, more wealthy than you, don't covet their social position. Don't covet power and prestige. And I would venture to say that very much of our coveting of people's actual possessions is really a subservient covetousness. It's not really the Rolex that we want, it's the prestige that goes with it. It may not be the house that we really care about, it's the fancy zip code that comes along with the house. So many people covet stuff because more than the stuff, they want the prestige that comes with the stuff. And so when you're going to make a major purchase, you need to train yourself to ask, why am I buying this? Number one, do I need it? Number two, is it worth the money? Number three, is there something that I should be doing with the money that would be more honoring to God? And specifically here, am I doing this so that my co-workers will realize that I've made it? So that my neighbors will be impressed? So that I can feel like when I lay down at night, I've finally arrived. Is that why I'm buying this? Item. So, coveting possessions, people, power, and prestige. Fourthly, etc. Couldn't think of a p-word that that meant etc. So, uh, you shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. I'm glad that's here. I'm glad that's here because not everything fits under one of those categories: possessions, people, prestige. So you just fill in the blank with the thing that most tempts you. You shall not covet your neighbor's health, his comfort, his looks, his children, his job, his air conditioner, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. You shall not covet anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, given the culture of acquisitiveness in which we live, it's inevitable at this point that someone might be thinking to yourself, everything you said so far makes sense. I mean, I understand all these things that people want and I see how this is true, but why is coveting so bad? I mean, what's really wrong with this? It's not like I'm actually stealing my neighbor's gas grill. I just really like his gas grill and wish I could have one for myself. And until I get one, I won't be happy, but what's so wrong with that? What's the problem with coveting? Why is it a sin? Well, first of all, because Exodus 20 simply says you shall not covet. That's enough, isn't it? But let's see if we can get to the bottom of why God might have given us such a command. What is the problem with covetousness? And I just jotted down three things this week. Number one, covetousness fails to love our neighbor. To me my mind about it, how is it hurting my neighbor? Well, hasn't God commanded us to love our neighbors Matthew 19, 19, and lots of other places. Of course He has. And has He not taught us to rejoice with those who rejoice? Romans 12, 15. Does covetousness achieve those goals? No. If I covet my co-worker's promotion, far from rejoicing over his blessing, I'm actually regretting my lack. I'm not rejoicing for anyone when I covet So, you need to ask yourself, what is your typical response when your neighbor, when your coworker, when your family member receives a blessing? Is it rejoicing or is it regret? Coveting always responds with regret and therefore doesn't love its neighbor. Second, covetousness fails to thank God. Covetousness fails to thank God. Most of us would never put our finger in God's face and say, God, you're not giving me a fair shake. However, every time that our hearts covet, that's really what we're saying, isn't it? God, if I only had that car, if I only had that wife, if I only had that living room suit, if I only had that game system, if I only had that job, if I only had that salary, if I only had the security that she has, then I would be content. You haven't given me aren't enough for me. I want what she has. And until I get it, you're shortchanging me, God. Does it ever occur to you that that's what greed and covetousness sound like to God? Covetousness fails to thank God. Thirdly, and I want to draw this out a little bit more because I think it's important covetousness leads to many other sins. Why is covetousness so wrong? Well, because covetousness is just the beginning. Covetousness leads to many other sins. Paul teaches us this in 1 Timothy 6, 9. If you want to study covetousness, covetousness more, study 1 Timothy 6. But in 1 Timothy 6, 9, Paul says this. Those who want to get rich, those who are covetous, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. So into what kind of ruin and destruction can covetousness What sorts of sins does covetousness lead to? Let me just list a few. Theft. Theft. It's obvious, isn't it, that theft grows out of covetousness. covetousness. You have it. I want it. I'm going to take it. We said this two weeks ago. Theft is much broader than simply snatching some lady's purse. We steal from the government. We steal from our employers. We steal all the time. And the reason we do so is because we love money. We love stuff. We're covetous. Greed is also a fruit of covetousness. Most Americans are affluent enough that if they covet their neighbor's flat screen television, they don't have to go in the night and steal it. We just go buy one ourselves. So, covetousness doesn't always lead to theft, sometimes it just leads to spending binges. And spending binges are nothing less than greed. What about bad debt? bad debt. When our covetousness turns to greediness and we want to go on a spending binge, some of us have money in the bank to underwrite our greed. The rest of us have credit cards. And those of us who have credit cards, some of us anyway know what it's like to get ourselves in trouble buying things we can't afford, things we don't need, but because we can and because we're covetousness. Covetous. It all springs from the root of Covetousness. Stinginess. Stinginess. God has commanded us to give to everyone who asks, Matthew 5.42. He's commanded us to befriend the orphan and the widow, James 1.27. He's commanded us to support our missionaries, 3 John 5-8. through But it's much more difficult to do that if your heart is filled with greed and covetousness, isn't it? If you're so much longing after the next new thing, it's very difficult to give to the poor. To give to the missionaries to befriend the orphan and the widow, resentment resentment's a fruit of covetousness isn 't it true that our coveting of our nature, our neighbor 's fortunate position doesn 't always stop with mere coveting isn 't it true that it often continues into contempt for that neighbor you start to be bitter. Towards her, Because she has more than you. She's happier than you. She has a better job than you. She has children. Whatever it is, the fruit of bitterness almost always arises where covetousness is planted. And finally, what kinds of sins does covetousness lead to? Most seriously, it leads to apostasy. Apostasy is simply a theological word that describes those who leave the church, leave the faith. And you could imagine that some people would because if covetousness produces all these other rotten fruits that we've just mentioned, then you would imagine that it could eventually lead to someone just abandoning Christianity altogether. But we don't have to imagine that that could happen. We can read about it We can read about the connection of covetousness and apostasy in 1 Timothy 6, 9, which I already read, and 10. Listen, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, covetousness, is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Paul says it. It had already happened in the first century of Christianity. People who loved stuff and prestige and money more than God eventually left the faith. They were pretending all along, and then finally the pull of everything that the world has to offer finally pulled them away. Demas is one example. You can research him in the New Testament. So if you thought about covetousness and you asked yourself this morning, what's the big deal? I hope you now have a few good answers. In fact, I hope you have a whole host of reasons why you should drive an axe through the root of covetousness before the tree has a chance to blossom into all these other rotten fruits. Now, we've thought long and hard about all that is wrong with covetousness, but I want us now to just turn and look at the bright side of the cloud for a few moments. What is the positive aspect of the Tenth Commandment? What is the solution for covetousness? I think the answer is obvious. We've mentioned it already a few times. The solution for covetousness, the positive implication of the Tenth Commandment is contentment. Contentment. That's what I really want you to leave thinking about today, contentment. Now isn't it true that discontent is the seed that springs up into the tree of covetousness? Isn't that true? We're covetous because we're discontent. But isn't it also true that when the tree of covetousness springs up, all the pods that fall off of that tree have seeds of more discontentment in them. So discontentment leads to coveting, and coveting just leads to more discontentment. It's a vicious cycle. You finally get that possession, or that person, or that prestige that you always thought would make you happy, and you find out that you're still hungry, maybe hungrier than you were before. Covetousness is like the grave. His appetite is never satisfied. The opposite of that is contentment. So many people are uncontent, discontent. Chuck Swindoll read a poem in a sermon he preached about contentment. It says this, It was spring, but it was summer I wanted, The warm days and the great outdoors. It was summer, but it was fall I wanted, The colorful leaves and the cool dry air. It was fall, but it was winter I wanted, the beautiful snow and the joy of the holiday season. It was winter, but it was spring I wanted, the warmth and the blossoming of nature. I was a child, and it was adulthood I wanted, the freedom and the respect. I was 20, but it was 30 I wanted, to be mature and sophisticated. I was middle-aged, but it was 20 I wanted, the youth and the free spirit. I was retired, but it was middle-aged I wanted, the presence of mind without limitations. My life was over, and I never got what I wanted. I think that fairly sums up the way some of us live. We're never quite content. We're always looking to the weekend, to the vacation, to the new year, to the shopping spree, to the buffet line, or whatever it is to make us happy. And do you remember Rockefeller? The guy who wanted just a little more? Listen to something else he said. It is wrong to assume that men of great wealth are always happy. Isn't that incredible? How much money is enough? Just a little more. Later in his life, it is wrong to assume that men of immense wealth are always happy. Here was a man who had it all and who, by his own admission, was not happy. Here's a man who always wanted a little more. He always got a lot more. And yet he testifies to us that none of that ever satisfied him. And those of us who live for the next new thing need to hear that well. Whether the next new thing is fall or winter or a house or a car or a pay raise or whatever it is, we need to hear that thing, good as it may be, will not satisfy us. Will not make us content. How about the counsel of a man who is much happier than Rockefeller? The Apostle Paul. Listen to what he says about this matter. Godliness is actually a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. That's amazing, isn't it? If you have food and covering, meaning clothes and somewhere to sleep, you should be content. And sometimes that's all Paul had. And sometimes Paul didn't even have that. Remember him in the Roman prison. Bring me my cloak. I'm freezing to death. I don't have covering. But Paul, unlike Rockefeller, was truly happy. You can read Paul's letters. And you can find him again and again and again referring to joy. He mentions the word joy or rejoicing over 40 times in his few short letters. And what do you think is one of the reasons why he was so happy? Why he was so joyful? Because he was content. He said on one occasion, I've learned to live with nothing, and I've learned to live with plenty. I've learned the secret of letting Christ be everything to me and being content. So what I want to say as we move towards a conclusion now is that the way to defeat covetousness is not mainly by fighting against covetousness, but by fighting for covetousness contentment, to fight with God's strength that you would be content. It is biblical, God-honoring contentment that will sever the roots of covetousness and kill the tree of sin that grows with it. So, how do we get that? How do we cultivate God-honoring, biblical contentment? Three practical suggestions and then we're through. Number one, generosity. Generosity. How do we cultivate contentment? Generosity. In 2 Corinthians 9, you can turn there if you want or you can look it up later, but in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul is writing to the Corinthian church and he's reminding them and urging them to take up an offering to relieve the troubled saints in Jerusalem, these people who were persecuted and who were poor. Corinthians, please give to the support of this church. And in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 9, he urges them to do something strange. I'm not in Corinth, Corinthians, but before I come, why don't you go ahead and take the offering up now and set it aside now so that when I come, it will be ready. And listen to what he says, particularly in verse 5. I thought it necessary to urge the brethren that they would go on ahead to you. In other words, he's sending some men on ahead I thought it necessary to send the brethren on ahead and arrange beforehand your previously promised bountiful gift so that the same would be ready as a bountiful gift and not affected by covetousness. Let me, let me put that in a simpler way of, of, of hearing it. Paul says, give your money now. Take up the offering now. Now. Don't wait until I come. Take it up now. Because the longer you hold on to it, the more you're going to be tempted to keep it. The longer you hold on to it, the more you will be affected by covetousness. That makes sense, doesn't it? Some of you know what it's like to be stashing money away, planning on giving it away someday. But money has a strange effect on human beings, doesn't it? Money is like Frodo's ring. And the longer you hold on to that sucker, the more you're tempted to use it selfishly and the harder it is to let it go when it's time. There's good stuff in the movies sometimes. And that's what money is like. Money will cling to you. If you hold on to it now, it will cling tighter and tighter and tighter. And so Paul concludes, and I conclude, that in the battle against covetousness and greed and the love of money, one of the best tactics is to generously give away money and possessions and to be at it sooner rather than later. Give your money away now, he says, so that it will not be affected by covetousness. Second strategy for cultivating contentment is heavenly-mindedness. Heavenly-mindedness. Listen to what Jesus says in these famous verses in Matthew 6:19 and 20. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. That's the commandment. Don't store up treasures on earth. Store them up in heaven. But listen to the logic in verse 21. For, because, here's the reason... Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen carefully to that. Jesus is saying, wherever it is that you choose to send your money, your heart's going to follow your money. If you choose to send your money, lots of it into the stock market, guess what you're going to do every day? You're going to read the Wall Street Journal. If you choose to send your money to send a child off to college, which would be a great thing, you know what you're going to do? You're going to check on that child. How are you doing? How are your grades? Whatever you spend your money on, your heart follows that. Because it's your money. You care. That's why when a person buys their first car, they treat it a lot better than they did mom and dad's car. Wherever your money is, your heart follows it. So, Jesus says, if you want your heart to be in the right place, Use your money to help it get there. Store up your treasures in heaven, and your heart will follow. Your mind will follow those treasures. If you want your heart and your mind to be in heaven, start putting your money there. Start putting your time there. If you would get intentional about putting your time and your treasure into eternal things, then your heart would follow. It's that simple. If you'd get serious, some of you, about tithing. If you get serious about missions giving. If you get serious about sharing the gospel with people. If you would get serious about prayer and fasting and studying of God's Word, then your mind and heart would be more and more set on heaven and less and less set on your neighbor's house, wife, ox, donkey, and servants. It's that simple. If your treasure is here on the earth, then you're always going to be looking here on the earth. But if your treasure is in heaven, it will take your mind off of everybody else's Stuff. Finally, a third strategy for cultivating contentment. And that is simply faith. Faith. Do you believe, do you really believe, that God will provide all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus? Philippians 4.19. Do you believe that? Do you really believe that if you seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, all these things will be added To you, Matthew 6.33. I sometimes struggle to believe those. And I would suspect that if you were honest, some of you would say that you do as well. Every Christian who's honest with himself realizes he's a little bit like that father in Mark 9 who asked Jesus to cast the demon out of his son. And Jesus said, if you believe, it'll happen. And what did he say? I believe. Help my unbelief. Every Christian is like that. He believes, but he doesn't believe like he should. That's where I am. And if you are like me and you sometimes struggle to trust God and struggle to be content, therefore, let me conclude by pointing you to Romans 8.32. This will help you have faith. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? That's a question. Listen to it again. He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him over for us all, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? It's a good question, isn't it? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. God delivered Him over to be mocked and tortured and crucified for us all for our sins. He was pierced through for our transgressions. Isaiah 53. Therein is the forgiveness for the covetousness and greed that some of us have been convicted of this morning. But therein is also the cure. For Paul asks us to think logically. If God would give you His only begotten Son, why would He withhold anything else that would be good for you? If God would meet your greatest need, that of forgiveness, and He would do it at the cost of the blood of His own precious Son, why would this God fail to meet all of your secondary needs at a cost that is much, much less. It's just logic. If God gave us Christ, He will surely give us everything else we need. So the real question this morning is, have you really banked your eternity on Jesus Christ? If so, then you've been granted forgiveness for your covetousness and for your greed. And if so, you've also been granted the cure. Because in looking to Christ you see the willingness of God to provide for your needs. And in believing that God will provide for your needs, you become content with what He provides. And if you are content with God in Christ, then you will have very little reason ever to say just a little more. Father, let us be content in Christ. Let us love Him and appreciate Him and see Him as the fulfillment of all of our needs. All of Your promises are yes and amen in Him. All of Your promises are backed up by the fact that You gave us the greatest gift, the most costly gift, and met the greatest need there at the cross. So as we prayed at the beginning, we pray now again, fix our minds on Jesus so that we'd revel in His forgiveness and so that we would grow in our own contentment. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.